0: Roger Madeline is an English developer regarded as the visionary behind major regeneration projects, Birmingham's Brindley Place, King's Cross in London. He's now joint head of another big redevelopment project called Canada Water, also in London, for a British land development company. Um, He's been in New Zealand, Roger Madeline, as a guest of AROP and meeting with industry groups. He was awarded a CBE for Services to Sustainable Development in 2006. I asked him why.
1: I was very interested in the early 90s about some of the things that um, Mrs Thatcher said, I think in 1989 at the United Nations. She talked about uh, us as a society, putting a lot of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and how, if we carried on doing that, there were going to be quite severe consequences. Uh, and if you listen to her talk to the United Nations in 1989, it's it's frightening how prescient it was. And uh, I used to fly sailplanes a lot, gliders, and I was always amazed with the power of the... Atmosphere and the sun, the power of the sun, and I love being out outside. And people have been saying to me for for years, "You must go to New Zealand; you'll love it." So here I am. Um, And the environment and what we're doing to the environment has just always been of interest to me because I, I enjoy the environment. And when Mrs. Thatcher and others started to talk about climate possibility of climate change, I started to think how I might be able to do something in a, in a little way and at the time I had the pleasure of being the development director and uh, and then to become the chief executive of a property company called Argent and although we weren't massive, uh, we were a private company uh, and we had quite a lot of firepower. We were doing things in Birmingham and uh, Manchester and Reading and, and London and I thought I wonder if we can make our buildings uh, less impactful on on the world, you know, we weren't the first people to think about that, so I got very interested in, in what other people were doing and trying to take air conditioning out of buildings and trying to use natural ventilation and you know, all the things that have been around for thousands and thousands of years. Um, and the buildings we were designing, I said, let's let's try and design them a bit more intelligently. Let's try and design them so they don't need maybe as much air conditioning. Let's think about whether... Uh, the temperature inside the building could vary a, a little bit, get a little bit cooler in the winter and a little bit warmer in the summer you know without using as much air conditioning. you know maybe people won't wear suits, maybe they can wear shorts like I do in the summer as soon as it gets hot and we made our buildings a little bit better than normal, and that created a little bit of excitement in the industry to the extent that uh I was given a an award by the construction uh, minister at, at the time. And I guess, you know, when the, I don't know what the process of deciding who gets awards and CBEs and stuff, but I guess, you know, people sit in a dark room and they go, does anyone? They just throw a dart. Does anyone deserve this? Yeah. Or, you know, it, it it and being a bit cynical, the government were also shouting about saving the planet. You know, um, right. Tony Blair um, was in um and was he in no he wasn't he he wasn't quite in in uh, yes he was of course he was
0: are you saving the planet or are you saving people from the planet
1: well the reality is we are just such a small player we we're, we're doing neither but you know we are uh, by our examples i guess trying to say to people you can do these things they are still good for business and other people are interested in them the government in the 2000s you know were talking about more sustainable development they were talking about lower energy buildings they said the government would only take buildings that, that met certain sustainability standards they were talking about uh, more legislation coming in to make sure that all new homes were you know, um category 5 um zero zero carbon Um, And all of those things got diluted because the reality was it was very difficult for the industry to do that and very expensive to do that, and the government pulled back from it. Uh, But in a small way, you know, we were trying to do some of the things they were suggesting that were rolled out in the wider industry.
0: When you see what's happening now with these extreme temperatures, do you think that what you did then was adequate to cope with the changes?
1: No. No. No, what we were doing. Let's say that the built environment um, needs to do a hundred things. We were doing two or three, um, but that was a start, and that was more than other people were doing. Um, and yeah, so I got I got the CBE because I was one of the few people that was putting my head above the parapet and saying let's let's try and do things.
0: So, assuming your head's still above the parapet, what are you doing at Canada Water? To Improve the sustainability of the of the area.
1: We're looking at um, well, from from our buildings' point of view, we've got thirty five, forty new buildings. We are looking at the embodied carbon uh, that that makes them, uh, which there is no legislation in the UK about how much embodied carbon you can use. So embodied carbon in the concrete, in the in the steel how much timber you can use, what kind of timber can you use. Um, but the industry is recognising that at some point there is likely to be legislation that, that limits the amount of embodied carbon you can use in the construction of buildings. So we and a lot of other property companies in, in the UK is starting to work out how to measure it and how to reduce the embodied carbon in, in materials.
0: What are your ideas so
1: far? Well, you can reduce the embodied carbon uh, in concrete by reducing the amount of cement. Uh, you can reduce the Does amount... Does
0: that dilute the quality of the concrete?
1: Well, that's a big question. Um, and uh, we're using pulverised fuel ash, which is a byproduct of burning coal, so it's not, it's not a great long-term thing, although you can get quite a lot of it from Germany at the moment because they've ramped up their coal-powered fire stations big time. As um, well, a consequence with the, of the war, in to deal with the gas yep. you know, um, uh, problem, yes, and also they turned off all their nuclear power, probably rather too quickly. So you can get a lot of pulverised fuel ash, and that reduces the amount of cement you put in your concrete. Of course, designing buildings that, that don't need as much concrete by designing them very efficiently. Uh, there are uh, a lot of uh, studies going on with the big cement manufacturers around the world. Unfortunately, the UK doesn't doesn't have any, Um, but our scientists are quite good, and so some of the scientists in the UK are helping some of the big cement manufacturers trying to work out whether you can make cement that just um, doesn't uh, emit as much carbon in its manufacture. Um, We and lots of other countries are looking at trying to use more timber. Um, You can get very low carbon steel, now, I think BMW and Mercedes have probably bought you know, the next 20 years of supply from the only big European factory up in Sweden that's, that's going to be able to roll it out. So we as a, as a property company, although we're quite large, we're tiny and we're not going to change the dial, but we and other property companies working together and trying things can signal to the manufacturers and signal to the government that we are willing to try very hard um, and would almost welcome legislation to create a a level playing field. Almost welcome. Yeah, I think you have to be careful about legislation. Um, Good legislation is essential for a a decent society, uh, but sometimes uh, ill thought through legislation can be a bit of an iron fist. um.
0: Do you still envisage buildings lasting for Decades and decades and decades, or is it more sensible these days to build with a shorter lifespan in mind, given how things are changing?
1: Uh, We are doing both. We are doing some buildings that are are designed to only be in a place for maybe five to seven years, but they are modular buildings where you can dismantle them and, and use them again.
0: And what goes into those buildings?
1: We have put a, a university in, in one of them, a new university that is a joint venture between University of New South Wales in Sydney, Arizona State University in King's College in London. They came together in 2016 with the idea of rolling out uh, a new applied engineering uh, university in London, one in Southeast Asia and one in, in the Americas. And then combination of Brexit and COVID delayed them a little bit, um, to the extent that their their ambitious plans were throttled back a bit. Uh, to the extent that we said, well, we can deliver you a, a modular building very quickly, um, and at cost. And if after five years you know, you just want to walk away, we can reuse that building somewhere else. If you want to expand it. Um, in a year or in two years, we can expand it very quickly. Um, and hopefully, if you stay there for three, four, five years, you know, your business will have stabilised and you'll know uh, what your long-term plans are and we can build you a, a new building. Yeah. So, so we do some buildings purposely to only be there for a, a short term. And then other buildings, yes, we do think, could this building be here in 100 years, 200 years or longer? They certainly can last a long time, you just look at go go to Rome and look at the first use of concrete in the Parthenon it's kind of been there two thousand years and done rather well. Uh, that was the early concrete, not using cement but mm. using amazingly you know, volcanic ash, so lots of stuff was done in the past, which we're almost reinventing now
0: when it comes to huge developments like the King's Cross or Canada Waters, which is really even bigger. I mean, you're creating a new town centre in Canada Water, right?
1: Yes, it's not... Canada Water's not bigger, but I think it's more important and exciting and more relevant because we are, as you said, delivering a whole new town centre or an urban centre. So if you close your eyes and open them again and you've got a clean sheet of paper in front of you... And I said to you, put on that piece of paper what you think would make a brilliant urban centre, a town centre. Um, you would probably come up with very similar things to what people came up with hundreds of years ago as invading armies. You know, I always use the Austro-Hungarian Empire, <laughs> the army yeah, you know, moving north into what's now Poland, and you had the Prussians moving east into what's Poland, and the Russians moving west. You know, Poland disappeared for a hundred years, but but the Austro-Hungarians got to Lviv, which you know sadly is in the in the news a lot now. And it was a nice little village, and the Austro-Hungarians thought this is a good location. You know, there's fertile land around it. Uh, there's a river. There's good transport communications. There's materials to build. So they stopped the. the you know, the horses and carts, and they said, who's got the plans for a, you know, a new city? You know, and they pulled out the drawer and this was a new city or you know, a big new town, and they go, we want an opera house, you know, and we want uh, a town hall, and we want a university, and we want, obviously, barracks, and we want we want housing for the artisans, and we want housing for the agricultural workers. We want housing for the you know, the management people and the intelligent, And we want streets and squares and public spaces for you know, civil life. And you think, nothing's changed really, has it? That's when you when you identify a good city or a good town. It will have all those components, won't it? And we seem to have forgotten What's what makes a good town a good city.
0: What's changed is the traffic. And as you'll know, here you are in Auckland... And you know that the whole city is riddled and ridden by traffic and traffic jams. And it's very, very hard to turn the clock back and create a people-centred place when you're already overrun with the demands of the traffic, isn't it? It's
1: a massive, massive challenge. uh, And Auckland is not alone at all in that there are thousands and thousands of towns that are trying to deal with the legacy of the last many, many decades.
0: And the problem is people hate the traffic and love their cars.
1: They do, they do, uh, because we have built a lot of our built environment for, for many, many decades on the assumption that you don't really have to think strategically about public transport. You just assume that people will own a car and they will use the car to, to deal with you know, the needs of their lives. And, and over the last few decades, that kind of uncontrolled development, assuming that people are going to have access to a car, has the consequences that, that you see in Auckland and many, many towns and cities you know, see in the UK as well. And I've been lucky enough to have worked in Birmingham and, and Manchester and we're working at the moment in, in Cambridge uh, and some of the challenges that those places have, where they're not massive, like London, where London can can usually come up with the financial equations that work to put in public transport because there's just the density of, of, of people and, and the ridership that will justify and pay for it. Places like Cambridge and Birmingham and Manchester, similar size, well, certainly the Manchester and Birmingham to, to Auckland, um, the sums are just very hard to work because good public transport, more than buses, you know, rails or light rails or metro systems, are always expensive. They usually are a bit more expensive <laughs> than you planned. They usually run into, you know, more challenges uh, than, than you hoped, particularly if you're, if you're moving infrastructure or you've got geotechnical problems. They often cause political casualties along the way, they cause a lot of frustration, you know, in the, in the construction. But I can't think of a, of a town or a city. You know, take Boston in the States where they did the big dig and I don't know how many politician scouts that, that took and how long it went on for and how much it cost. But it's not that many years after public transport systems are finished when the vast majority of people say, What an amazingly good thing that was, I was always in favour of it. And you go, hang on a minute, no, you were the person that was really it's it's a challenge that is shared across across the world. You know, and I can I can look at cities in the UK from Edinburgh, which was a disaster for the people, it was a disaster for the politicians during the construction and literally a few weeks after it opened, you know, you could see the tide of opinion changing to finally Edinburgh's come back into the the world of civilised cities with its tram system.
0: So it's not simply that people hate change, right? It's that people lose their homes sometimes, lose their communities in the process of something being created anew.
1: Yes, well, uh, sometimes the infrastructure requires land obviously and 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 that land is already occupied as 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 people's homes and that that's a nightmare for them. Uh, I mean you often, must have experienced often.
0: this in King's Cross how did you how did you overcome community resistance
1: there? There was a uh, massive community resistance to the high-speed rail coming in which which although we were very aware of it and involved with it because our development was then going to follow on so so we would meet the community that were directly affected by here you know, having uh massive construction works right next to them and and noise and dust and and vibrations um, i I don't think anyone actually was moved when they built the the high speed rail coming into St pancras um the high speed two rail you might know. Um, that's happening in, uh, or, or not happening at the moment, it's just gone on hold, in London, has required the 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 moving of people. That's that's a challenge anywhere, isn't it? You know, if you say to someone, I'm going to require your home, you know, it's more than financial, isn't it? You
0: know? Or I'm going to... I know you've worked very hard on this community garden that's been going for years and years, but we've got a better idea.
1: Yes, it's very, very difficult, and building... Consensus takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of listening. So at King's Cross, uh, when my company was selected in 2000, I was very aware that the previous attempt to develop King's Cross in the late 80s and, and early 90s, there was a massive opposition. You know, there was, there was a, a group of people, um, you know, well over 200 people, that had come together solely to object... To the development because because they didn't. Well, there was there was some probably left quite to the left of politics that that felt
0: you were fat cat developers coming in and making fat cat a
1: developers uh, private private ownership of land you know was was you know, unacceptable you know, in in their mind um, the, the the drivers of private sector business you know were never going to think about the communities.
0: But in fact, I mean, just let's fast forward for a moment. What happened in King's Cross was that you got lots of very Flash Harry shops where, as somebody said, if you want a handbag for 2,000 quid, that's fine, um, in order to make the returns needed for the redevelopment. So it becomes an elite project, doesn't it?
1: Well, uh, the the hinterland of King's Cross, um, you... You may know, but to the, to the west was Summerstown, where about 95% of, of the land use was subsidized, highly subsidised housing, and to the east uh, were a, a, a number of estates in, a, in another borough, which, again, um, the majority of the land use was, was highly subsidised housing. And the retail that used to be, there was a high street called Caledonian Road to the east, and there was Charlton Street to, to the west had decayed to the point of just being very worried, worrying and and feeling unsafe. And from our point of view, I I said on day one, if we can work with the local authorities and the communities in these surrounding areas to, to help improve the environment and the economy of those areas, the economic activity of those areas that will help the value of our land. And I, and I had this story which which sadly um, came to reality. I said if someone is interested in investing or occupying a building or, or buying a, an, an apartment at King's Cross and they arrive a little bit early for a, for a meeting like I often do and they think, oh, I'll just go for a walk and they walk a few hundred metres to the east or the west and they think this is not a very nice part of town or worse, they get mugged. And I had two people um, who were very involved in the project at, at an early day, who walked from King's Cross over to Euston Station through Somersetown and they actually got mugged twice. And that, that doesn't help the, the value and the attractiveness of our area. So I said to the local authorities and all the community groups that I met, you know, there is a business incentive of me trying to help you improve the economic sustainability, the social sustainability, and the environmental sustainability, and of course, you know, you have to be careful if you say that. You know, they say, well, we're we're very happy, and then you say, well, the headmaster's just told me that seventy percent of the kids at, at the school here you know, have got families that aren't working, and that can't be good, can it? An economic inactivity in in this part of of Europe, um, and they said, well, your jobs aren't going to be jobs that you know, any of us are going to take, and I said, well. You know, why not you know, what kind of jobs do you think you, know, you might be interested in and then you you get into a, a very interesting dialogue where you realize that that jobs in an urban environment are very very diverse from obviously the the construction and the design and the construction from the from you know, all aspects of life and ken livingston you might remember was the first mayor of London and everyone was very worried about him and his left credentials and Red Ken. And I stood at an event with him and it was about big regeneration sites and how you know, they were going to push the poor people out and they were going to make it unaffordable for, for poor people and you know, all the jobs coming in were the wrong kind of jobs. And someone said to Ken Livingstone, well, look at Canary Wharf, You know, like what's that ever done for London, you know, for our London, Ken? And Ken said, you know, 85,000 jobs ain't a bad start. You know, and someone said, they're not jobs for us. And Ken Livingston said, don't ever tell me that you know, people from your community can't be bloody lawyers or bloody fat cat bankers you know, or you know, engineers or... And he said, if you don't want to do that, he said, you think of a number of maintenance engineers and cleaners and if you want to lower your aspirations, you know, working in restaurants, working... He said, there is a full diversity of jobs, but there's no shipbuilding or coal mining. Get used to it. And I thought, wow. (laughs) This is, you know, left Ken, you know, actually reminding people that the diversity of jobs being produced by these big urban regeneration projects should be for everyone, And that headmaster of that school in Somers just to the west of King's Cross, they had more Oxbridge uh, entrance than any other school in London from a from, from a very low base, because there was just something in in, in the excitement of what was happening around them that could kind of raised the aspiration. I think, and the, and the headmaster was very excited. And um, you know, there's no reason why. Um, areas that consider themselves down in the dumps and poor and challenged you know, shouldn't be able to grasp that aspiration and, and working with local authorities and working with businesses and thinking about routes from from school and how you can help people at school and how you can get homework clubs up and how you can get that aspiration in into people.
0: I'm talking to English developer Roger Madeline about his latest mega project, Canada Water, in London. What are you envisaging for Canada Water in terms of community? I mean, how do you create a community centre where there wasn't one before?
1: Well, there is one, and I think one of the dangers of of, of any developer is, is going into a place and saying, you know, we are going to...
0: What was there? Give me an idea of what was there.
1: Well, if you go back to um, 1969, it was 50% of the... 600 acres of the Rotherhithe Peninsula was, was water. It was docks, massive docks. Why would do they
0: call it Canada Water?
1: Well, uh, they call it Canada Water because when they built, when they extended the Jubilee Line, which is the one that goes, um, well, it actually is is the line that crosses all the other London ground lines. It goes from Wembley, swings down south of the river and then goes back up north of the river to um, Canary Wharf and, and, and out to Stratford. Um... Canada Water was um, needed a station, or they were going to build a station there. And it intersected with a, with a railway line that had been there since the 1840s. And on that railway line, there was a Rotherhithe station and there was a Surrey Dock station. Now, I changed the name from Surrey Docks to Surrey Quays because in the 80s, you know, everyone wanted to dissociate themselves from docks. <laughs> That's a kind of Mrs Thatcher. Um, so when they built this new station... They couldn't call it Rotherhithe, which it was kind of probably was Rotherhithe because there was already a station. They couldn't call it Surrey Docks. And Canada Dock, which was a massive dock, it had been reduced by two-thirds in size to allow a shopping centre to be built on the kind of reclaimed land. Someone obviously looked at what was left of Canada Dock and said, well, this is like, can't call it Canada Dock Station, but it's Canada Water Station. So they called it Canada Water. Now, from my point of view, there's advantages and disadvantages in having a new name that intrigues people, Uh, whereas King's Cross was a very strong name that that meant one thing to almost everyone in London, which was deprivation, drugs, prostitution, crime, filth. (laughs) and. One of the first questions I had when it was announced, you know, we were the selectors' developer for King's Cross, someone said, are you going to change the name? And I said, no, I'm not going to change the name because what a terrifically strong name. And they said, yes, but it's associated with all the things I mentioned. And I said, yes, but we're going to build a new development that changes the reality of that. And they kind of went, good luck, good luck with that. But, of course, if you talk to anyone in London below the age of probably 45 they have no idea that King's Cross used to be <laughs> a whole and King's cross what a terrific name whereas Canada water almost everyone I talk to in certainly in the property industry you know and just generally in London they go oh, Canada water like where, where's that what is it they have no preconceived idea about it most of them don't really know what it is and so that's an advantage we haven't got to overcome any preconceptions that it's a horrible place but the disadvantage is very few people really know where it is and I'd say 99 out of 100 property people don't know where it is really, they don't know it's halfway between Canary Wharf and the City of London, they don't know it's 11 minutes on the Jubilee Line to the West End etc, they don't know we're between Peckham and Shoreditch, the two trendiest places in London it's only when they come there and we show them yeah, you know, the 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 location by taking them up a twenty-five storey building, and they 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 almost all go, wow! I didn't know that. Um, and so we have a job of of just letting people know where it is uh, and what we're doing. Now you, you you said what was there? So the docks closed. Docks were filled in in the in the seventies, and at the end of the seventies, Mrs Thatcher arrives. There's a massive recession here. You know, she's trying to re- reshape the economy. And she forms the London Docklands Development Corporation with with Michael Heseltine. And the first place the London Docklands Development Corporation think development could be viable is the Robberhive Peninsula because it's closest to London. It's got a railway. And they encourage development by putting in the infrastructure, putting in social infrastructure, putting in green spaces, which are amazing, that legacy. Uh, that, that they undertook. But most of the development was pretty low-density housing and a lot of it car-dependent. So it's one of the few places that close to central London where a lot of the homes have got one or two cars literally outside where they are.
0: What are you going to do with the housing and the people who live in the housing?
1: Well, over 30,000 people then started to live on the Rotherhive Peninsula. So we arrive with our 53 acres, which was a shopping centre built in, in the late 80s, uh, a big old print works that the Daily Mail built and then moved out of in 2011. And are you going to keep that? We are going to keep that, um, and I'll tell you about that if, if we've got time in a minute. So this 53 acres we have, which hasn't got anyone living on, is part of a 30,000 community already and most of the people who live there love living there because it is low density and green mm. and it's 11 minutes from the west end and 2 minutes from canary wharf and you know, 9 minutes from shoreditch and 5 minutes from peckham like what's not what's not to like you know you're living almost in the country but you're in you're in central london but what they would like and seriously the vast majority of people we talk to say we really want you to make this a proper Lively, vibrant urban centre, as
0: opposed to, but without
1: messing up you know, right. what we've got.
0: As opposed to what a kind of commuter suburb.
1: Yes, right. Yes, so a lot of people genuinely say we absolutely love living here. You know, when our friends you know, in other parts of London come and visit us, they go, "Wow, you know, like, this is like so green and it's so lovely, and there's woods and there's you know, water space." And we go to the one or two restaurants that are here. And next time we see each other you know we we've, we've kind of done that <laughs> we 've been to the riverside pub we 've been to the restaurant, so we always go back into you know the the, the bigger urban centres in London where you 've got the thirty bars and restaurants and the, and you know much more vitality much more much more of an urban experience so they want us to deliver the choices of bars and restaurants and cinemas and culture and you know, music venues etc um et but don't disturb their life. So the answer is everyone that already lives there we will hopefully not disturb them at all and we will create this new urban center which they will be able to walk to in 15 minutes or 10 15 minutes. 15 minute the
0: 15 minute yeah. rule.
1: The 15 minute city, eh, yeah. which everyone's talking about which is just a reinvention of, you know, what we've known for years but mm. never really articulated have we?
0: I don't see that happening in Auckland.
1: Uh it's from my three days here, mm-hmm. um, I think it can happen in certain pockets, um, and I guess you know I've, I've been asked to, to come over here because the developments I've been lucky enough to do in Birmingham and, and Manchester did increase the densities and the living populations, uh, and at Canada Water and Kings Cross, yes, we've increased the densities and the and the intensity. Fundamentally, on the back of good accessibility or, or good transport. So the hypothesis is, if there are parts of Auckland where the accessibility is improved, can you increase the density? Not to the point where you've got your forty-storey tower blocks everywhere, but you know, just up the density, virtuous density, we we call it. Virtuous uh, density. Virtuous density. Mm. You know, that doesn't. You don't have to go high to be dense, but. Eight-story buildings, six-story buildings. You know, some of Bloomsbury in London is the most densely you know, populated part of London, and everyone finds it very pleasant. There's no towers, but there's a lot of eight-story mansion blocks, and they're actually quite closely packed together. And they share green spaces in internal courtyards. Lots of green. There's lots of green, mm-hmm. but there's also there's lots of people live there. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's very. And we, and we did a we did a lot of studies of various parts of London to say to people. You like these places. Do you know the density is, you know, X you know, homes per square foot. You know, you don't have to just get density from going very high. There's nothing wrong with going very high in certain places, but you can get density by just going a little bit higher than the the two stories that I see a lot around Auckland. Nothing wrong with that, but I think a lot of people are realising something has to be done with the traffic. So I met a taxi driver at the airport on Sunday. Yep. And the first thing he said to me was, I'm really pleased it's a Sunday. And I thought, I wonder why he's saying that. You know, is he, you know, Has he just been at church and he's just been inspired or something? And I said, why is that? And he said, because I'll be able to get you to your hotel probably in half an hour. And I went, how long does it normally take? And he went, aha, that's a good question. He said, at least an hour and sometimes an hour and a half. And sometimes, too, I said, you're joking. That variable, he said, that, that is a massive challenge, you know, the traffic and the time of day you're trying to get around. And, you know, I thought, blimey, you know, he started it. You know, uh, traffic is a challenge that people know, but as you said earlier, trying to say to someone, you can't use your car is, is, is not going to work.
0: Um, tell me what you're going to be doing with the printing works, which is a massive What's it being used for now? Nothing.
1: Um, well, when when I arrived um, after King's Cross, um, I was asked if I wanted to, to lead uh, the Canada Water development for British Land, and uh, I walked around with my wife in the summer of 2015, um, and the thing that struck me particularly was was just the green space and the and the and the docks and um and the opportunity. We, we had in terms of not having to move any residents. And the big print works was yeah, right in our faces. And my wife said to me, what are you going to do with that building? And I said, uh, well, Southwark Council, Planning Authority and British Land, and the architects who've been involved so far believe it's going to be demolished and just replaced with probably apartment buildings. And she looked at me and and said, well, you, you can't knock it down." And I said, "Why not?" And she said, "Because you'll never build anything like that again." And I thought, "She's right. You'd never build anything like that. It's a purpose-built printworks." So I walk into to British Land, and that building is costing us eight hundred thousand pounds a year empty, with standing electricity charge and uh, and rent and security costs and stuff. And uh, I just call me old-fashioned, but I think you know. Uh, at some point, British Land's going to tell me, you know, that's, that's not very good, Rog. What are you doing about that 800? So I found someone, British Land were, we're already employing them, who was an events operator. And I said, Could you come and have a look at the print works and see if you could monetize this empty industrial building for filming or product launches or, or storage or anything? So he, he walked around it with me and he said, yeah, I could, I could get all sorts of filming in here and, you know, there's this you know, photo shoot and product launch and, and maybe a few you know, beer festivals or something like that. They like this kind of edgy industrial stuff. Um, and we did this joint venture where um, you know, he did all the work uh, and then we shared the, 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 the net income. That's um, handy. 70 20. <laughs> okay. um, And about... seventy months, twenty. 70-20? 70-30. Seven, yeah, well yeah, I, I tried Just eight, checking on your I, figures here. <laughs> I tried 80-20 and uh-huh. he, he said, no, 70-30. Um, and about six months into him looking after and monetizing the space, he introduced me to a young Australian, as it happens, uh, called Bradley Thompson, who was from a company called um, Global Radio Broadwick. And they were the kind of music events... Uh, organization of capital radio group uh, and we stood in the old print hall and he said uh rog you know, this could be the most exciting and the best music venue in britain and i won't tell you what i said because it began with f uh and he said you know no seriously and i said yeah how can you have music events in here and he, he said this is how it works and they're electronic music events and i went kind of like raves that doesn't sound very good to me and he said well they're not like raves now people pay 35 quid you know DJs are international stars you know you actually look at the stage it's it's more like going to a concert as opposed to a a nightclub so to cut a long story short we decided to try an event and I was very worried all my colleagues were very worried about you know how 6,000 people would come in and you know whether there'd be lots of drugs and alcohol and Stuff, but it was managed superbly. There wasn't one complaint. There wasn't one complaint. And so we did another one. And then we did another one. And we did another one. And then, long story short, two years later, we are either the world's number one or number two electronic music event of the world, venue of the world. And we are getting DJs flying in from the states or Ibiza, paying eighty, paid eighty thousand pounds for a two-hour set. Some of them are paid even more than that. And then it got to the point where some of these DJs were reducing their charges because they wanted to be at the printwork. Now we thought we could we could upgrade this building into the 21st century. You know, we have to put some insulation in it. We have to put hot and cold running water in it. We have to put some toilets into it. We have to you know we have to bring it into the modern world, which will take a lot of money and and uh, and and take a little bit of time. Um, but I. I don't think I can stand in front of my board and say it's just going to be for electronic music events because they may go in and out of fashion and you know, there is a stigma of about 6,000 people dancing around, uh, listening to boom, 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 boom. So we, we decided to see how the space might be attractive for other artists and cultural and we got the London Symphony Orchestra to come and have a, have a go in it. So, so Simon Rattle brings the London Symphony Orchestra down and we're listening and we think, it sounds quite good to us. Yeah. And I said to the chief executive, I said, sounds quite good, but you know, I don't really know what I'm talking about. So Simon Rattle finishes and he said, this is the second best acoustic ball <laughs> he's played in <laughs> in Next Europe. Next to what? Yeah, well, that's quite handy. <laughs> and then we get... <laughs> so we got 12 All dates... All thanks to the Daily Mail. We got 12 dates. I'm not going to say thanks to the Daily Mail. We got, we got 12 dates from the London Symphony Orchestra booked in. We got the BBC proms, we got the English National Opera, we got some ballets in, we got Sir David Hockney doing a massive electronic art exhibition in there. And that was all booked in for 2000. So none of it happened because of COVID. So we, so we come out of COVID and we're, we're keen to press ahead with the with the development. We apply to convert the building and extend it into offices, which, which we had outlined permission for anyway because no-one assumed that it was ever going to be a cultural venue. In the back of our minds, we always thought, if we can run another season and test economically how attractive it really is, then we can come back afterwards. And fortunately, Southwark Council knew that that's what we were doing we got permission to extend it and convert it to offices, but there were ten thousand objections saying, "How dare you close this this amazing venue?" And I guess if we were a little bit devious, which which we're not, sometimes you just you're know, like, "Oh, that's quite interesting." So, if we then can justify keeping it as a as a venue when we go in, if there's any concern, we go as 10,000 people who really want us to do it. Yeah. <laughs> so, to cut a long story short, we are just about to put the detailed design in to retain the scale and the essence of the big print halls as a as a venue. We're putting another venue uh, in the old plant room for 2,000 to diversify the, the kinds of activities we we can have there, so... Maybe there'd be you know, some nice jazz music. There'd be you know, other just live music. There'd be business conferences, you know, away days, uh, ballets and, uh, and art, art events. And we think the business case justifies us doing that on a standalone building. And from a wider uh, perspective, you know, the washover of you know, maybe a million people coming and going every day is, uh, is, is a great heart to a new yeah, yeah. town. So sometimes you get lucky. So at King's Cross, you know, we had the the massive old industrial heritage uh, of the granary, which became central St Martin's, Uh, Canada Water. You know, my initial view was, what have we got here that can really elevate the status? And, And we stumbled across, you know...
0: Serendipity.
1: It is, yeah. Well, I think, you know, serendipity... You can encourage serendipity, can't you?
0: There was Roger Madeline, English developer...